was like, you know what? I'll fix that. I'll put the Bibles back in the pews. And as you can probably see, I forgot to put my, the Bibles back in the pews, so I apologize. Uh, but I do want to encourage you this morning, because we all, I assume, have a smartphone. It's a phone that's smart, and it has this thing called a Bible app on it. Or some, maybe you brought a Bible. If you have it, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Um, we're going to be camped out in there. Um, I have been studying this text a lot uh, for the last like month or two months because I walked through the Sermon on the Mount with my youth group kids, and so it was on my heart, and I got an opportunity to preach it, so why not? And then, obviously, starting next week, hopefully you guys can join us for summer Sunday school, we'll be walking through the Sermon on the Mount as well, so this is kind of a, a precursor to that. So I'm going to go ahead and read the text we're going to be preaching from, and then we'll jump in. All right, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, says this. And this is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the word of the Lord. You guys ever miss the point? Let me give you a few examples. Um, generally, when you do you know, sermon illustrations or opening illustrations, uh, you, you try to like pick on yourself, right? Self-deprecating tends to get a point across. So I'll start by picking on myself. And I tried to think of something way back in the past um, to maybe show you that I've grown a lot or something, but I'm actually going to give you an example of missing the point from literally just this morning. And here's what happened. Um, we're having a little gathering after church, and this morning my wife asked me, hey, can you fill up the kids' pool? And immediately, my brain goes, kids' pool. I don't like the kids' pool. It's messy. I pay for the water I put in it. I have to inflate the thing. I mean, it is a pain in the butt to fill up that pool. Besides, the kids are just going to sit in it, they're going to put mud and dirt and grass in it, and then they're going to walk into my nice, clean house. These quotesy fingers there. There, pool. As it turns out, by sitting there and focusing on all the bad stuff that that kid pool and pain that that kid pool brings me, I missed the point. I missed the point that my kids really, really like playing in that kid pool. And they like having friends over to play in that kid pool, and they have a blast. I set that pool up, I probably won't see them the rest of the day. They'll be out playing in the pool. And sure, they'll be really dirty afterwards because, you know, pool water. I won't go into any further detail. You know what I mean by that. <laughs> right. And by the way, all your kids are invited to come over to our house after church and play in the pool. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but the point was, is I had missed... The point, I had missed the point that like this is a blessing for my kids and my kids actually really enjoy playing in it. And so instead of me focusing on 
that aspect. All I could focus on was, it's dirty, and I have to inflate it and fill it up. Man, that's a pain. That's a pain. Um, There's other ways that people miss the point sometimes. Um, Now I will pick on my wife. Sometimes my wife isn't good at getting jokes, right? I'll tell her a funny joke, and she'll just... Was that the punchline? I don't get it. Um, Especially if I tell her Star Wars jokes, like, uh, you know, uh, what did the Sith Lord... uh, What does the Sith Lord say when he takes a selfie? Be sure to get my dark side. (laughs) Now, if you know Star Wars lingo, and you're... familiar with Star Wars, you get the joke. My wife has never watched Star Wars, so she missed the point. She missed the punchline. And we all do that, right? As humans, we're all very culpable to miss the point. You know, sometimes we get all caught up in the politics of a thing that we forget why it started in the first place, right? Certain movements or certain ideas, they start off good, and eventually they get convoluted in the mess of other stuff, and we forget the point. Um, This morning, we're going to be taking a break from the book of Acts, because that's where we've been walking through, right? And we're going to jump into Matthew. I'm going to take you back in time a little bit, back to when Jesus is just starting his ministry. And like I said at the beginning, I uh, am intending on walking you guys through the Sermon on the Mount in the summer Sunday school, and so I wanted to pick a text that I just, I got stuck on, and by got stuck on, I just kept I uh, kept coming back to it because it was encouraging and challenging, and I wanted to share uh, with you all what I was learning. And so first, a few things about Matthew just to kind of help us get the context. Matthew was, well, actually, people debate who wrote it. Most people say Matthew wrote it, and so we'll just go with that. Um, it was primarily written to a Jewish audience. And one of the primary points that this gospel writer is trying to make in the book of Matthew is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies that prophesied a Messiah coming. And so because Matthew is writing to that audience, that is the focus of his gospel. As he walks through Jesus' life, he'll be like, oh, see, he he fulfilled this uh, prophecy here, and oh, we'll go here, and he fulfilled this prophecy here. And it's no different when we get to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the more famous sermons that Jesus taught. And I should not say more famous, it's the most famous sermon that Jesus preached. And he's talking to a mixed crowd. Within the crowd, you have his disciples, whom at some points he addresses specifically. And at other points, uh, he addresses the crowd at large, because it was a very large crowd that had come to hear him teach. This was the culture of the day and age uh, that he lived in. People wanted to hear truth taught, and so they would follow rabbis around and listen to what they had to say. And on top of the fact that Jesus himself was performing miracles and healing people and stuff, people wanted to be around Jesus. And so he takes advantage of this opportunity, and he preaches a sermon. And he starts off by going through what are called the Beatitudes. And essentially what the Beatitudes are, are the marks, and this is how I wrote it down, are the marks of an interchange in a Christian, all right? Some people say it's like the marks of a Christian, but I, I think it's, it's more in-depth than that. It's, it's marks of the interchange, the spirit working in a person um, when they get saved, right? Because you go through it and you say, blessed are the meek, blessed are the mild, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? And it uh, tells this idea of a person who has come to Christ realizing the full weight of their sin and their need of a Savior, poor in spirit. 
Blessed is the person who is meek and humble, who serves and thinks of others, not uh, other than themselves, right? It's this attitude, this interchange that a person in Christ has experienced when they get saved. And that's the primary point of the Beatitudes, is to point out the interchange. And then he goes on to uh, the next section, which is... Um, <laughs> now, I taught this to the youth group kids a while back, and I wanted to be cool and hip, and so I named my teaching, Hey Kids, Stay Salty and Lit. Now, now, <laughs> I'll explain what it means. Don't run off yet. Um, I, <laughs> yeah. Because as it turns out, it probably doesn't work because in the context of what salty means to kids, it's something to the effect of that guy's being salty as in mad. And then lit, well, I won't get into that today, but you, kids ask your parents or parents ask your kids, maybe that would be a better way to say it. But what I meant was, when I was trying to be hip and cool and failed epically, is that this concept of, in the next section of the sermon, this concept of being the salt of the earth and being the light of the world is uh, Jesus essentially saying to these Christians who have had this interchange in their lives, this, these beatitudes, if you will, uh, be the salt of the world. And what was the primary use of salt back then? Its primary use was a preservative. It fought back the decay of... You know, like if you salted meat, it fought back the decay of the meat because meat eventually spoils. And the salt prevented that from uh, happening so fast, right? And so the primary purpose of a Christian then, what Jesus is saying, is to be a part of uh, preserving the world and fighting back the decay of sin and death on the earth around us, which means we feed the hungry. We seek to do social justice for those who are experiencing injustice. We do those things. But then he goes on to the next point, light. Be light. And the primary point he's making with light is, he goes, I'm the light. Not me, but Jesus. I am the light. And he says, you don't put that under a basket. You preach it. You make it known. And so this section here is Jesus essentially going, we are called to preach the gospel the light, and we are called to, as Christians, fight back the decay that's going on in the world around us. Salty and lit. I thought it was clever, but until I urban dictionaried it. Don't do that, by the way. Okay. Not a good idea. And so we get to this section where I'm going to primarily spend the rest of my time. And it gets to Christ fulfilling the law. He's given us the interchanges of Christian experiences, right? He's preaching a sermon. He's talking to his disciples. But he's also talking to a crowd of people who probably aren't believers or maybe they're pagan God-fears or what, what have you. And there's also the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees probably watching him with a scowl on their face, right? More on that in a minute. And so he turns to this section about fulfilling the law. And he does it for a couple of reasons. One of the big reasons he does it is because when he starts his ministry, he's healing, he's helping, and he's teaching. The kingdom has come. Prepare yourself. The kingdom is here. And that's what he's saying. And so people might have been wondering, like, well, whoa, Jesus, if you're saying, like, the kingdom has come, does that mean that all the Old Testament stuff is gone and done with? Like, we don't need to worry about it anymore? And so he says, no. And this is why this section is here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish 
the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Now, what does he mean by law and prophets? Back then, they would have known exactly what that meant, but I'll tell you now. It's essentially the Old Testament. The law would have been the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible, which has the law and the creation and everything in it at the beginning, the Torah. And then the prophets would have been all the major and minor prophets and the wisdom literature. So essentially, he says, I did not come to get rid of, I did not uh, come to throw away the law of God. And so when they reference that, for us, in our day and age, Old Testament. Cool? The more you know. And the point was, is that he had said he had come to fulfill it. Now, I'm going to hit pause on that idea, and we're going to come back to it at the end. Oh, lost my spot. Here we are. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Essentially, he's saying that the Old Testament, God's word, the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament are still relevant for them back then when he's preaching this new kingdom coming and for us now where we're at now. The Old Testament is still relevant. Sometimes it's hard to, to see that because if you go back and read some of the stories that are in the Old Testament, we have a hard time saying, like, how is this relevant for us today? Like, what does the law of God mean? Why... Why, why are there so many awkward stories in the Old Testament, right? And there are a lot. I mean, come on, 2 Kings 2, Elisha, some little kids come and make fun of the fact that he's bald and he curses them and then some bears come and kill boys. That's a weird story. Why is that in there? What's the point, right? And there is a lot of stories like that. I can name a bunch more. Lot and his daughters. I won't say anything more than that if you know that story. You already know how awkward that one is. But there's a lot of stories like that in the Old Testament. So the question might be, especially for us today, how is it that this is relevant for us today? And I'm going to answer that question in a second. I'm going to leave you hanging a little longer. But the point is, is that not a dot or an iota. He's clarifying for the people that are listening to him as he preaches this sermon. He's going, hey, guys, this isn't ending. I'm not abolishing it. I'm not doing away with it. It's still relevant Today, he goes on, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So again, he's bringing in this new kingdom. He says, prepare for the kingdom is at hand. The Old Testament isn't done with. Not an iota. And then he says, if you are going to degrade it or not teach it or not follow it, then you will be considered least in the kingdom. Now, we have to look at the context. Who he specifically seems to be talking to right here in this particular sentence is his disciples. Because the assumption is is that they are a part of the kingdom or that they're believers. And so he's essentially saying, if you're a believer... And you say, no, we don't need to worry about that Old Testament business. That's old news. Let's focus on the, the, the good news. Am I right? Then you're wrong. And that's what he's saying.
I keep holding you guys back. I, I'm, I'm going to get to answering some of these questions in a second. The next section. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a staggering statement, is it not? Exceeds? A lot of people would have been uncomfortable with this. Imagine the people who weren't Pharisees. Imagine the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the normal people who weren't scribes and Pharisees in that day, hearing that. How on earth am I going to surpass the righteousness of a Pharisee? They have the Torah memorized. I forget my birthday sometimes, all right? Like, that, that's a lot to remember. But they had it memorized. The scribes had to meticulously write and translate it, and they knew it well. They had to know it well in order to be scribes. How could anyone surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? And this gets to the point I skipped earlier in the text. When Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, he says, I've come to fulfill it. And what does he mean by fulfill it? I have three things that I think Jesus means by fulfill the law. And that's what I'm going to share with you. And then I'm going to close. And, and then we can uh, you know, hang out and stuff. Okay. He fulfills them in three ways. The first one is he clarifies the law. Let me show you what I mean by that. Do you ever miss the point? For the scribes and the Pharisees, well, actually, here, we give them a bad rap. Let me give you a little bit of their history, and so maybe we can maybe go a little easier on them, despite the fact that they miss the point. Um, in the intertestamental period, it's a big word, that's the time spanning between the Old and New Testament, a lot of stuff happened. You had Caesar the Great happen. He was a Greek. He came and conquered a lot of places, including Israel. And when he conquered it, he did a few things. Well, one, he conquered it. And two, he did what is called Hellenization, which is just a fancy word for bringing Greek culture into other places. And so what he would do is he would come into a city, he would conquer it. This is mine now. Now here's what you guys are going to do. You're going uh, to put a theater over there, and then over there we're going to put a public bathhouse because that's what we Greeks do. right? It would be much like us you know, going to another country and, I don't know, giving them a McDonald's and a Taco Bell, right? bringing our culture to them. And that's what he did. But he conquered them and did that. We, we don't conquer those other countries. You see what I'm saying. <laughs> and so he, he comes in and he would do these things. He came and he did that in Israel. He brought, culture, uh, he brought Greek culture to Israel. And because of this, you had two camps rise from the Israelites, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were all about the cultural influence that the Greeks brought. Because with it brought wealth. And the Sadducees were generally wealthy. And the Sadducees uh, were all for the politics and the Hellenization of Israel because they thought it brought benefits to them. Right? And so they were Israelite believers who were like for the culture kind of stepping in and doing their thing. All right, yeah, that's cool. We can get along with this. Pharisees, on the other hand, were like, mm -mm -mm -mm. no. They were all about the law of God. 
They were all about understanding the Old Testament and following it to the T. They spent their lives doing that because it was their core belief that the Greek culture couldn't influence it because then it wouldn't be the Old Testament anymore. See what I'm saying? So we kind of have to give the Pharisees a fair rap. Their intention was to know God's law well. And if we understand what the Bible is for, if we understand what the Old Testament is for, we understand the fact that if we look at God's law and understand its initial point, that it was brought on to show us humans God's character, our character, go back and read the awkward stories in the Old Testament, you'll get to know human character pretty fast, and his intent to fix it. That's the point. The Pharisees, in their uh, umph to understand and know and follow it to the T, eventually missed the point. They missed the point because they got so focused on following the law that they missed why the law was there in the first place. And so when Jesus comes and preaches his Sermon on the Mount, he fulfills the law by clarifying it. And when you move on and read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he walks through specific laws and he does that. Because what does he do? He gets to the heart of the matter. You know, uh, murder, for example. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, if you hate anyone in your heart, you have already murdered them in your heart. Right? He clarifies the law. He brings you to the point in the heart of the issue. Which is a big one, right? It makes you realize, well, I guess we're all a bunch of murderers, aren't we? Because we've all hated someone. I'm sure there's some of you in here right now, if I were to say, you already have that person in your head, I'm sure. And so he clarifies the law. And that's one way that he fulfills it. He came and he rightly interpreted it, and he rightly aligned it to the point it was meant to make. And that's probably why the Pharisees eventually killed him, because they did not like what he had to say. Did not like what he had to say. But once we understand, as Christians, and I'll just point this out now, once we as Christians understand that the Old Testament is not as scary and intimidating as it sounds sometimes, and that it is just there to show us ultimately Christ, read your Old Testament. That's an aside. He clarifies it. The next one, he lives it out perfectly, right? Um, when I taught the youth kids, I essentially, at the time, said there are two ways to fulfill a law, right? You fulfill a law by following the law, and you fulfill a law by paying back the debt when you break it, right? And what Jesus ends up doing when he comes and he dies on the cross for our sins and rises again three days later, the gospel message, right? When he comes and does that, he fulfills the law, not for himself, but for you and for me, especially me because I need it. I can't follow the law, darn it. I miss the point all the time. Don't we all? And so if we understand what Jesus is getting at when he talks about fulfilling the law, we understand that he clarifies it for us. He realigns it. He gets us back to the point. And then he lives it out perfectly because we're not able to live it out perfectly. And then, on top of that, he pays the debt we couldn't pay. Isn't that the gospel message? 
A lot of times we come to church and we miss the point. We come to church to go to church. We come to church because I want people to think I'm, I'm a good person. I go to church because that's, I want people to think I'm a good person, right? You've missed the point. Sometimes, uh, well, actually, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. But there's a lot of planes I could go down, right? A lot of times as humans, we get sidetracked and we miss the point. And the beauty of this text and the beauty of the whole Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus comes in and he realigns our crooked paths and he says, this is why the law was here in the first place. Right? He ends up summing up the law later on and he says, how do you, how do you sum up the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as a, as a broken, sinful human, unable to always do that, he comes in and picks up what we can't. He comes in, and when he saves us and makes us new creations, he gives us a desire and an ability to pursue following the law. Because as Christians, we're still called to do that. And I could go into clarifying what I mean by that, but I'll let you do your own research on that. So what do we do with all this? With all my babbling, what do we do with this? I mostly wanted to do this to remind you guys of God, well, Christ's goodness. Because when we understand that he didn't come to abolish something, but to actually fulfill it, and in his fulfilling, he makes us right with God, he changes our hearts and our desires, he like saves us, when we understand that, when we start with that, when that's our foundation and how we uh, go about the rest of our lives, that changes how we live. That changes how we think. changes how we treat people, right? That's what it's meant to do. And I also wanted to do it because <laughs> for years I was intimidated by the Old Testament. I was like, eh, I'm going to go read Matthew again. But that's like walking into the middle of the movie. I'm not going to understand anything that's going on, right? You have to. You have to understand that the Old Testament was written to show us God's character and our fallenness and need for help. And Jesus comes in and fulfills that, right? Um, another encouragement that I offer is this. Uh, in the previous section, he talked about, you know, being salty and lit, as I so eloquently put it. And it's this idea that Christians are called to understand the word, know the word, study the word, and then live it out. A lot of times, people, we, we miss the point and we focus on one or the other, right? A lot of times, and I was guilty of this forever, is I would just read my Bible focus on myself, focus on my spiritual growth, focus on my maturity, my sanctification, while, you know, someone over here is hurting and struggling and I'm not doing anything about it, even though God has plainly put it in front of me to, to do something. And I don't. I miss the point. My encouragement for you is don't, don't miss the point. Do both. We are both called to be salt, to hold back the decay and sinfulness of the world we live in and help and encourage, and serve, which I think our church does a really good job at, by the way. And we're also called to be the light. 
which means sometimes the light is bright and it like hurts our eyes and it's, you know, we have to let it adjust for a second, you know? Like the gospel is offensive, but we still have to talk about it. We still have to preach it. There's a whole group of people in this town, in this neighborhood, who think they know the gospel and they don't. And I won't say their name because I love them, but you know who I'm talking about. And we as Christians sometimes have to confront that. I'm scared to say stuff like that because I don't want to be offensive. But the gospel is offensive, and sometimes we have to tell the truth. We have to be the light. And sometimes the light's just too bright and offensive for people, and they're going to get offended. But it is what it is. Don't miss the point. All right? Let me pray for you guys, and I'll let you be. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can open it up and that you teach us and you, uh, you help us learn more about you, how you come and you clarify and make things right and make things new and make things awesome and understandable, uh, that you come in and you fulfill the law by living it out, becoming the perfect spotless lamb that dies in our place. You pay the debt we can never pay, Lord. And I thank you for that. And I pray that uh, each and every person in here and those uh, streaming would be encouraged to go into the world bringing that light to everyone else and, and being the salt that holds back the decay of sin and death. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Have a good week, folks.